Well, good morning, Good Shepherd. It's good to have uh, all of you, to your listening voices. Uh, I want to welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially on this Easter Sunday morning. Uh, it is a joy to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning. Uh, well, I want to begin this morning looking by looking at uh, the, the Gospel of Mark. Actually, we're, we're going to take quite a tour through a number of the Gospels uh, this morning. But this, the text that I'm going to read from is Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, uh, beginning in verses 31 through 38. And this, uh, this morning, I want to ask what is really probably a question that is uh, central uh, to, um, to Christianity. Uh, I, I want to ask a question that is central to the person and to the work of the most influential person in human, in human history, that is Jesus of Nazareth. I want to ask the question, what was the central teaching of Jesus. And I use that word teaching deliberately. Jesus himself was called a teacher. And I'll talk more about that. But I don't know. Think about it from your own childhood. I don't know how many of you can think back and remember a teacher who was very, very formidable, a teacher who was very influential, a teacher, or perhaps a coach who was really larger than life and who, uh, through their diligence, through their kindness, through uh, their um, attention to you, had an incredible, really a disproportionate impact on your life. Teachers have that, and Jesus himself was called a teacher. And in fact, there are many uh, movies, many stories written about various teachers and their impact upon children, especially children of disadvantage. Um, I I, um, was recently... um, Reminded of a story uh, within a, a probably most one of the most uh, uh, amazing chapters of American history. Shortly after the Civil War, uh, after the Emancipation Proclamation, there were a number of missionary organizations in uh, in the North, especially the Northeast, that sent young women, women in their late teens, women in their early mid twenties, down into the South into the rural areas to, uh, to, to serve as teachers uh, uh, from, uh, for new schools for the children of former uh, slaves. And these, these, uh, these teachers, they were called marms, these, these New England school marms, as they, as, they, as they went down in the wake of the Civil War, came to teach these children. And what they faced, uh, the opposition that they faced was staggering. In fact, one, one Afro-American economist notes, or he, he writes, these white teachers with black students faced incredible hostility and ostracism from the Southern whites. Some were threatened, some were beaten, and even murdered. He continues, their black pupils not only lacked any educational preparation or values, but were often guilty of absenteeism, tardiness, and unreliability, not to mention lying and theft. And he goes on to describe just the the significance, the way that these teachers were able to create a generation of Afro-American children who would rise up with some very meaningful education and would be able to actually stand, and their children, subsequent generations would stand upon their shoulders. It was W.E.B. Du Bois who said, who called this, this, this missionary effort of these young women, he called it, quote, the finest thing 
in American history. Isn't that beautiful? In fact, the, the, the uh, Afro-American educator, Mary, uh, Mary McCloyd Bethune, if you know anything about her, she has an extraordinary life. She was the daughter of slaves, and she herself was educated by one of these uh, New England school marms. And she writes this. She says, she speaks of, quote, those beloved consecrated teachers who took so much time and patience with me when patience and tolerance were so desperately needed. There are a few things, right? There are a few things like a really good teacher, even when I think back to my own education, especially when I, was at, uh, I, was, I went to a military academy for my undergraduate ed- education. And I was, I was really more of someone who was, a, I, I enjoyed the, the arts. I enjoyed the history and, and literature and philosophy. And of course, being at a military academy, you had to take numerous science and math classes that I was always dreading. And yet my teachers for those classes were simply phenomenal. In fact, I'll never forget, I had had an aeronautical engineering class taught by a professor who just was able to make the material come alive. And you you remember that those those teachers and, and what they teach us, actually, it leaves an impression upon us. And, and Jesus himself, what's so interesting that Jesus himself is known, he's known as a teacher. And teachers do something, good teachers do something really well. They, 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 t- they have a central message, they do. They have one central message, and they repeat that message. They say it many times, they say it frequently. And not only do they repeat it, they rephrase it. They, they vary it. They, they say it not only many times, but they say it in many ways. And not only do they, do they repeat it and rephrase it, they even represent it or they realize it. They, they embody it. And, and, we, and, we, and that's what a good teacher does. They, they actually embody, they live what they teach, or as we'd like to say, they practice what they preach. And we're going to see that very much in the life of Jesus. And I want to I want to go ahead and read our text this morning because our time will be referring to it, but I'll be, I'll be, again I'll be referring to a number of different passages in the gospels to show you what is the, really the central teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. So let me let me begin here with Mark chapter 8 beginning in verse 31. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus then began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned, and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human, human concerns. And then Jesus called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny, must, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. 
What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we truly ask that you would send your Holy Spirit, be present through the preaching of your word. Father, if there is anything inaccurate or unwise in what I have said, would you strike it? Would you strike it from the ears of those who hear? And may that the piercing beauty and wonder and wisdom and welcome of Jesus be so exalted. Would it be imprinted permanently on the hearts of all who hear? Oh, Father, please, I ask, I beg you, that you would enable me to do some measure of justice to what is the central message of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, again, I want to give an overview of what I think is the central message of Jesus, and it bears, of course, directly upon Easter. It is a message that I can explain or summarize or capture with not even a single sentence or even a single word, but with a single letter. It's the letter V. The letter V. Most of you know that uh, when you make this sort of V sign, it's what is this called? It's called the peace sign. Of course, the letter V stands, it means peace because V stands for victory. It stands for victory. And the message, the central message of Jesus has to do not only with the idea of victory, but even more fundamentally with the notion of, of, of the shape of a V. That Jesus' life and his teaching are about one who, who comes himself and who calls us to go, going down. A humbling, a losing, a surrendering that then will become, he promises, a winning. That will become an exalting, that will become a finding Again, a single letter, the letter V. A letter that, that stands for peace, that speaks of victory. And we're going to see this language, this, this language again and again that describes this V-shape teaching, this V-shape life of Jesus of Nazareth. Let me just give you just a few examples from Jesus' life. And, and again, just to understand the idea that Jesus' teacher is so important, that throughout, throughout Mark's gospel, from which I read, it said on at least 11 occasions that Jesus himself is called a teacher. In fact, if you include the term rabbi, um, that term more or less is, is synonymous with the word teacher. If you include that, that, that term rabbi, Jesus actually is called a teacher or rabbi 14 times. He refers to himself in several places um, as a teacher. So this notion of teacher is really fundamental to who Jesus was. And again, don't, don't get me wrong, there are some differences between our 21st, 20, 21st century conceptions of what teachers are and what, what teachers were in Jesus' day in the first century, but there's still a tremendous amount of overlap. The differences are, today, in, our, in our world today, teachers are primarily informational. They impart information. 
Whereas in the first century, teachers were really about transformational. They, they, they were about, excuse me, they were about transforming their students. In fact, we see this in Matthew chapter 10. We see this parallel between a teacher-student relationship and a master-slave relationship. That's very telling. So Jesus speaks in the same breath of him being both teacher and Lord, or teacher and master. And that students, his students, in fact, the, the Greek word for student is, can, I mean, the Greek word for disciple can also be translated student. And so the idea that these students are, they are, they are students, but they are also servants. So in Matthew 10, for example, Jesus says, a student is not above their teacher, nor is a servant above their master. Now here's the transformational part. Here's the imitation dimension. He says, it is enough for students to be like their teacher and servants to be like their master. Okay, so we see this idea of, of teacher. And, and the question again begins, again, as I've mentioned already, is was there a central message? Good teachers have a central message, and they, they repeat that message, and they rephrase that message, and they represent that, mass, and that message. And so, and I want to suggest this morning that, in fact, very much so, that a good case can be made that Jesus indeed had a central message. Listen to some of these excerpts. I'm going to read from different passages, and I want you to hear both the repetition as well as variation in the things that Jesus is saying. So, for example, we already read this morning from Mark 8, verse 35. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. In fact, in Matthew's variation, it's whoever will lose his life will find it, okay? In, in Matthew 23, we read, whoever exalts themselves will be humbled, but whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. And we see that twice in Luke's gospel in chapter 14 and 18. And then another variation, we see Jesus says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. We see that uh, in a number of places, but it's in Mark, also in Matthew. And then there's a, there's a very similar variation. Let the greatest among you be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. That's from Luke chapter 22, verse 26. And then a very similar, and very elsewhere in Luke 9, the one who is the least among you, this one is the greatest. And then again in Mark 9.35, anyone who wants to be the first must be the last, the very last, and the servant of all. And again, there's a, a final variation that I want to mention here in Mark 10.31. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And again, before we actually unpack and try to bring these and synthesize and bring these different statements together, I want to just highlight this idea that not only does Jesus teach this, not only does he repeat it and rephrase it, that he actually represents it, that it is central to his own life. Okay, we see this, this, this idea here, for example, in, um, in, in, the, in, the, in John's gospel. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. 
But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And then he says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, and anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. Okay, so we're seeing a number of variations on this on a, on a theme, and we're seeing this notion that Jesus himself is speaking that this is what he will do. In fact, he teaches on it regularly. In fact, if you look back at the passage in Mark chapter 8, for the very first verse, in verse 31, Mark states that Jesus, quote, began to teach them. That is, he began to teach his disciples. In other words, it's right at this moment in his ministry when Jesus starts to teach this very thing and he teaches them again and again and again. And what is that thing that he's teaching them? That he himself is going to go to Jerusalem and be be rejected, be humiliated, be flogged, be handed over to the Gentiles, and after three days, rise again. So this is something that he began to teach, that he was teaching them. It was an ongoing lesson, and he himself was representing it. What an amazing idea. Okay, so just what is this? What does it mean? What's at the heart of this this message that is, if you will, V-shaped? What's behind all these variations of what is really the same message? Jesus is saying this, to win we must lose. The only way up is the, only, is, the, is the way down. I mean, let me be more specific. Jesus calls the world. Now just, get, just take that in. He calls all of us to get rid of what's fake and fleeting. To get rid of what's fake and fleeting. To get rid of what's fake and fleeting so that we might gain what's for real, and what's forever. That we are to get rid, we are to rid ourselves of what is fake, of what is fleeting, what is passing, that we might gain what is for real and forever. And we're to do that in two ways. We're to get rid of what's fake and fleeting in, in two ways, with regard to our status and with regard to our stuff, with regard to our popularity and with regard to our possessions, that we are to get rid of what's fake and fleeting first with regard to our status. That is to say, he calls us, again, look in, look, look in verse 34. He speaks of this notion that we are to live with conviction, that we are to be ready for rejection, that we're, that we're to get rid and, and, and stop clinging to worldly ideas of status, worldly ways of obtaining status. Verse 34, then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be to my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, what does that mean? You see, in Jesus' day, both whether you were a Roman, whether you were uh, just simply lived in the Roman Empire in general, and especially if you were a Jew, the notion of being on a cross, the notion of crucifixion, was the most, um, the most powerful expression of rejection. You could not have a lower status than to end up crucified. There was no louder way to speak of rejection that you are the problem in society. 
that you are seen as, um, as everything that's wrong, not only politically in the eyes of Rome, but, but theologically in the eyes of God, in the eye for, for the Jew. So Jesus is saying that, that, that you and I must get rid of what's fake and what's fleeting with regard to our status. That we are to live our lives, listen to this, we're to live our lives with conviction. Let me tell you what I mean by conviction. Conviction in two ways. Conviction in the sense of being convicted of our sin. Jesus calls us to lay aside all pretense, all, all the charade, and to live humbly, to live honestly. So he calls us to confession of sin, to stop being, to get rid of what's fake about our lives, to get rid of what is simply mere pretense and hypocrisy, to have conviction, to be convicted of our sin. But secondly, it's conviction, not only in the sense of humility, but conviction in the sense of heart, in the sense of courage, the courage to stand. Look at verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now those, those, are, those are staggering words. So listen, listen. Brothers and sisters, hear Jesus' words this morning. His central message that He is insisting that you and I give up what we cannot keep. That we are to get rid of what is fake and fleeting with regard to our status. That we are not followers of Jesus if we are unwilling to confess our sins. If we are unwilling to have the courage to stand and to speak his name, to identify ourselves in our, in our work context, in our school, school context, in, our, in, in whatever it may be, our neighborhoods and our family, to stand and say, I am a follower of Jesus. He's calling us to get rid of the pretense, to get rid of the charade, and to be honest about ourselves, to have a humility, and but also a heart, a courage, as well as confession. And then you know what the result of that is? The result is truly something extraordinary. When you come across people who confess their sins, and who are courageous in public, who are willing to stand up and do the right thing. That confession, that courage, that humility, and that heart, they come together to produce something beautiful. It's kindness. It's kindness. And there's nothing like it. When God's people, when we as Christians embrace the central message of Jesus and confess our sins in our marriages, confess our sins in our families, owning what we need to own, speaking honestly, specifically, fully about ourselves, it is amazing. There's, not, there's really nothing like it. Like it. it, it just, you stand out. Just, people just don't do that sort of thing. When you are a coworker, when you're an employee, when you're an employer, a supervisor, 
who confesses their, their failures, who admits, that's on me, I did that. This is what I did wrong specifically. It is so incredibly loud. When we are unwilling to, to any longer just be that fake, be that fraud, it is truly staggering. It's truly breathtaking. There's a, most of, I'm sure many of you have seen the movie um, Les Miserables. There's this wonderful scene where Jean Valjean, who has much to confess, much to own, is, stands up in, the, in, a, in, a, in a legal context and makes known to everyone what he has done. It's staggering. And what's so amazing about living this sort of life, this, this idea that when we actually begin to get rid of what's fake and what's fleeting, there is an amazing sense of freedom, of life. We're, we're, we're freed of the charade. We're free of the pretense. We're freed of being fake. We're, and we discover a sincerity we discover a reality. We discover a, a peace and a joy that is truly amazing. So Jesus is calling us to something beautiful here. But he calls us to get rid of not only what's fake in terms of our status, but he calls us to get rid of what's fake in terms of our stuff. Not only, not only with respect to our, our popularity, but also with regard to our, 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 our possessions. He calls us to lose control, to, to be ready to relinquish what we have. Look at verse 36. He says, for whoever wants to save their life, I'm sorry, verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul. There's this beautiful sense that Jesus is calling us in this incredibly sacrificial way to say, let go. Get rid of what you cannot keep. It's amazing. He says, lose control. It's a beautiful. It's a, I love how he says, live with conviction and lose control. Be ready to relinquish, to lay down to cast aside our own possessions, our own stuff. He calls us to, to read completely let go of our fortunes and our future. We see this in the life of, uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the civil rights leader Rosa Parks, but her story is a beautiful one. It's a story where she was had the then she was known um, just for her quiet fortitude. In fact, if I remember right, her um, her biographer actually named uh, named her um, biography something something like quiet fortitude. And it's amazing to see her story here and the way that she engage. Everyone knows about how she you know she gets on the bus and she refuses to leave. But there, that, that actually that, there's a story there that I won't take the time to go back. I think won't, won't take the time right now. But there was a 12 years prior to that there was an engagement with that very same bus driver and her. And and in those 12 years that following the, the, and following the way that she strengthens and fortifies herself and prepares herself to get rid of whatever status that she might have, to get rid of whatever stuff she might have. In, in fact, it wasn't even that, that actual event on the bus that was, 
really the most difficult thing for Parks. In fact, for her biographer, it writes that what really, it's what follows. In fact, when civil rights leaders begin to approach her, and they want to use her as, in a sense, a guinea pig, as a test case, to challenge the city's bus laws, that's when things get really sticky. Because suddenly there are all kinds of decisions to make. As, As one author notes here, he says, for Parks, this was no small decision. She had a sickly mother who depended on her. To sue, listen to this, for her to sue would mean losing her job and her husband's job. It would mean running the very real risk of being lynched as her mother, and to lynch, um, to, from, sorry, excuse me, it would, it would mean running the very risk of being lynched from, quote, the tallest telephone pole in town, as her own husband and mother put it. Her husband pleaded, Rosa, the white folks are going to kill you. And the author goes on to say, because, but because of her nature, Parks was perfect. She was the perfect plaintiff. Not only because she was a devout Christian, not only because she was an, up, an, upst- an upstanding citizen, but also because, listen to this, also because she was gentle. She was gentle. There was a sense in here, this woman in, at her age, being a woman, being gentle, being quiet, she was a lion-like threat. And that's what we become when we actually embrace the message of Jesus, when we begin to, when we say, yes, I am going to get rid of what is fake and what is fleeting. I am, I am going to dis- disregard my status in the eyes of the world. I am going to live with a conviction, a conviction of sin that confesses openly, readily, freely. I'm going to live with a conviction that brings courage in, the, in, in difficult situations, to stand up and take the side of Jesus, to stand up and, and care enough to confront, to, to stir the pot, to, to expose the false peace of, of, of the various contexts that we have in family lives, in our corporate world, in, in our communities. The result is something truly extraordinary. So again, Jesus calls us to get rid of what's fake and fleeting with regard to our status, and with regard to our stuff. But he then calls us, why are we to do that? Why are we to get rid of all that is, that is truly fleeting, of all that is truly fake? Why are we to do Why must we do that? Because Jesus says, to, if we do that, we will gain what is for real and what is forever. Do you hear that? That is the central message of Jesus. That we, he calls, he demands He insists that we get rid of what is fake, of what is fleeting with regard to our status and our stuff so that we might gain what is for real and what is forever. He calls us with regard to our status to lean on a new connection. Lean on a new connection. I love this. In verse 34, he listened to He says, whoever, listen, it's so beautiful. And he calls the crowd to him along with his disciples and says, whoever wants to be my disciple. Do you want to be Jesus' disciple? Do you want to be his brother or sister or mother? Do you want to be his servant? What higher calling? Do you want that connection? 
Jesus is saying, if you get rid of what is fleeting, you get rid of what is, what is passing, of what is fake, you will gain, I, you, I, you will have me, I will be your teacher, I will be your master, I will be your Lord. You will have a connection to the one who is sitting at the right hand of the Father. What an amazing thing to have. That is, now that is true status, isn't it? I don't know if you have seen one of my, one of my favorite movies, is the, the series of movies, is the, the Christopher Nolan uh, series of, um, of, um, uh, of movies about Batman. And the very first one in Batman Begins, we find the young Bruce Wayne uh, immersed in uh, the, criminal, uh, the criminal underworld. Of course, his, his, uh, his parents are, are murdered, and he is overcome by a sense of wanting to avenge their deaths. And in, in part of doing that, he, he decides that he needs to know what it's like. He needs to understand the criminal underworld. And so literally, he sort of leaves his life of, of, of luxury, leaves a life of wealth, being an heir. And he, and he enters into um, all of these prisons. And, these, these, and he interacts with some of the most dangerous and despicable villains just simply as a random person, no one really knowing who he is. But what's amazing is that at any time, because he's a Wayne, because he has connections to his father's fortune, he can escape and, and get out of that. That's not the final thing for him. So this, this knowing that he has this connection enables him to go into situations that are so dark, that are so brutal, to go without, to, be, to sacrifice, to lose. Why? Because he has the connection, because he has resources, because he has an inheritance. And as Christians, we can so easily, we can get rid of what is fleeting and what is fake. We can enter into situations of a real difficulty, of real hardship, of real pain, because we know that we will gain what's for real and what's forever. So we have a status that we are the servants of Jesus Christ, that we are his followers. He will never leave us or forsake us. That we are united to him forever. That nothing in all creation, neither height nor depth, nor the past nor the future, nor angels nor demons, nothing can separate us from his love. United to him, we share in his destiny that we will gain what is for real and what is forever. First and foremost, starting with a connection, a new status that we have with him Secondly, to gain for what's, what's real and forever, we, we, we have truly, with regard to our stuff, that we actually look forward to a new creation. You know, in this world, we, we, we cannot hold on to what we have. It is all going down. It is all going south. It is slipping through our hands. And to gain what's real, for what's, what's for real and what's forever, is to realize that we are heirs to a new creation. How beautiful is that? How astonishing is that? This very message, this message that Jesus is saying, look, you've got to get rid of what is fake. You've got to get rid of, of what's fleeting so that you might gain what's for real and what's forever. It's summarized so beautifully in several parables. Two, two parables set side by side in Matthew 13. Listen to this. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, 
Isn't that beautiful? Those of you who are kids, if you're listening, what a, what a, what a beautiful thing that Christianity is. It's, it's like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he, he hid it again. I love that. He, he looks around and he hides it. And then in his, in his joy, in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and he bought that field. Do you see the cost? He got rid of everything else. He got rid of all that he had. There was a cost to it. But it was so worth it. He did it in joy. Why? So that he could have that treasure. Jesus continues to the second parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went, he went away and sold everything that he had and bought it. So how did the, oh, let me ask this question. How did the, how did the disciples respond to this teaching. Well, we see in our passage, actually, if you look in verse 32, uh, it says that Jesus spoke plainly about this. He spoke plainly about his own life, how his own life was going to be the very V-shape that he had been preaching, that he had been teaching all along. And what, is, what, what do we see? Jesus, he spoke plainly about this, and, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. See, in the, in the chapters that follow, right after chapter 8 of Mark, the, the disciples go on to argue, the, argue amongst themselves about who is the greatest, right? About status. They turn away children who are, who are of no status, who are being brought to Jesus to be blessed. The disciples are astonished that a rich person who was of high status would stand almost no chance of entering into the kingdom. James and John worked the angle using their mother to sit, wanting to be able to sit at Jesus' right and left in his glory. They want the status. Indeed, on the night of, of Jesus' betrayal, as the disciples are celebrating the Passover, they're celebrating the Last Supper with the Lord, we read in Luke that yet again they are arguing over which of them is the greatest. They insist, and they go on to insist that they would die with Jesus before disowning him. They just, this, listen, the disciples didn't get Jesus' central message. That's how counterintuitive, that's how countercultural, that's how strange it is, that's how difficult it is. What? You want me to get up, give up my status? You want me to get rid of my stuff? Oh, come on. But what's amazing is that they eventually did. They did, it did, they did get it. And in fact, at one point, the penny drops. And listen to this. When the penny dropped, the world was never the same again. It was never the same again. You think, well, what, how did the penny drop? Well, it was very simple. It was very, it was very simple in the very fact of Jesus' resurrection. They, the disciples had to see it. They just couldn't hear it. They couldn't be told that Jesus was going to do it. They actually had to see Jesus went first. He was the first one to jump off the cliff, if you will. He was the first one to give up everything, all his status, all his stuff, all his popularity, all his possessions. He gave it all up on Good Friday, didn't he? And it was on that Easter morning it was on that Easter morning that Jesus got it all back again. That he was raised from the dead. See, Jesus believed, listen to this, Jesus believed that whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He believed that the last will be first. 
Do you believe that? Do you believe that? See, Jesus himself, he believed that whoever saves his life will lose it. Are you busy saving your life right now? Saving your status? Looking good? Never owning anything? Always defending? Always posing? Are you good at sort of securing your stuff, making sure everything's okay? You're in control? You've got all your stuff? Jesus says that whoever saves his life will lose it. He's saying you cling to it, you're going down. You live up the pretense, you live up the charade, it's all coming out. Jesus says, that, Jesus says that whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He says that the first will be last. He believed those things. And the question is, do you? Do you believe it? See, Jesus, what Jesus is calling us to do, his central message is embodied in his life because that's where the world is going. Jesus insists the exalted will be humbled. The humbled will be exalted. This is where it's all going, and are you on board? See, it all turns on his resurrection. It all turns on Easter morning. Did he really rise from the dead? Did, was he really exalted after his, humili- his humiliation? After being last, is he now really first? It all turns on his resurrection. It's in, it's in Jesus' resurrection that the last and the least had become first and foremost that the one who had utterly humbled himself had been utterly vindicated. The one who had lost and hated his own life for others had, in fact, gained it forever. He trusted his Father and proved to the world that his Father really is trustworthy. You see, no one was treated more unfairly than Jesus. No No one went down lower no one was more humiliated. No one, was, was, no one has, is, is more last, if you will, than Jesus. No one was treated more unfairly than Jesus. And yet no one trusted God more fully than Jesus. So what is Jesus' central message? Turn. Turn from the deeply disordered and detestable values of this world. Turn from what is highly valuable among men, from the concerns and values and agendas of men. Turn from what is truly terrible, what is truly perverse, what is so fake, what is so fleeting. Turn away, get rid of it. That we ourselves, that we are, listen to this, that we ourselves might embrace a way of life that we might follow him into losing our lives, into serving this world by being rejected by it. What a beautiful message. Listen, this morning, Jesus says, come, follow me. Follow me. Will you follow him? Christian, are you following him? Are you getting rid of what is fake? Are you getting rid of what is fleeting with respect to your status, with respect to your stuff, so that you might gain what is forever and what is truly for real? Hear both the, the, the welcome 
of Jesus. Hear him woo you this morning. He wants you to have the status of his follower, the status of his brother or sister, the status of his mother, the status of a family member. He wants you to be united to him, to know his welcome, to know his wisdom, to know the wonder of who he is and what he has done, to know the peace and the life and the joy, the freedom that is found in being his disciple, to die to the worries of this world. He is calling you to something so beautiful, and yet he is also warning us. If we hold on to what we cannot keep, if we grasp, just clutch with, a, just a, with our fists, what we cannot in any way, shape, or form hold on to. We are going down. What will we do? Will we hear both the warning and the welcome? Will we hear him wooing us this morning and truly follow him? Brothers and sisters, during this time, all the more, you know, this, this whole... This whole crisis has enabled us truly to see through so much more of the emptiness, hasn't it? To see through just how quickly wealth can disappear. To see how quickly our positions of, of, uh, of employment can just be gone. To see how quickly that actually what the world lives for in terms of its status and its stuff is so, truly so fleeting. It's truly so fake. Will you, in light of this crisis, follow our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the resurrection and the life, the one who has been raised from the dead and is alive forever and ever, the one who is reigning even now at the right hand of the Father? Surrender your life to him this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at the message of your Son it's, it's terrifying in so many ways. It's so unsettling. It's dismantling. Father, it requires of us what we cannot do. Father, even if our hearts desire then we cry out for your Holy Spirit to intervene, to subdue us, to take over. Oh, Father, please, would your kingdom come in our hearts? Would your will be done in our minds and souls? Bend our affections. Renew our allegiance initiate that allegiance. Father, for some, they may be listening for the first time, hearing clearly the message of Jesus Christ. I pray that they would bow their knee, that they would give up all pretense, that they would, they would walk away from what they know is fake about themselves, about their world, and that they would live in conviction, a true conviction of sin, that leads to confession, a true conviction that leads to courage, that leads to the courage of a Rosa Parks to stand for what is right, to stand alone in humility with such kindness. Father, we pray that you would enable us by the power of your Holy Spirit to get rid of all that is fake, that we might gain what is forever. How beautiful. Father, teach us by your Holy Spirit to long to be a follower of Jesus, to long to be known by the name of Jesus, to be called a Christian, to be called, to be identified with one who was rejected by the world. 
Oh Lord, I pray that you would enable us to, 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 to take the words of the hymn upon our souls. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them untrue. Father, thank you that you are not untrue. Thank you that you are faithful. And even as Jesus committed himself, even as he gave up his spirit to you, even as he entrusted himself to you, believing that you were at work in all the fog and the friction, believing that you were at work in all of the chaos, that you were working your perfect purposes fully, beautifully, finally. May we also do the same. When we discover you as so faithful, so reliable, so trustworthy, and in that faithfulness, know a freedom, oh, an unparalleled freedom and a joy that the world will never know. Father, hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.